Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Americans revere the creation of wealth. Anand Giridhar Das wants us to examine this and how it shapes our life together. He knows from the inside the web of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, think tanks, foundations, and convenings from TED to the Aspen Institute, and book and speaking circuits and media that confer power. I'd interviewed Anand before and wanted to draw out the generative aspect of a confrontational and thought-provoking message he's now bringing about the implicit moral equations behind a notion like win-win and the moral compromises in cultural consensus we've reached without reflecting on it about what and who can save us. And I actually think we're now at a place where we are ripe much as we were 100 years ago when we were in the first Gilded Age and you had these great inequalities and great new technologies and a lot of dislocated people and a lot of anger and a lot of philanthropy. And what that gave way to was an age of reform. I think we are ripe for a new age of reform in American life where these basic questions of what's the relationship between work and healthcare? How do we do social mobility? in an age of the gig economy and, you know, iPhones. What is our relationship to place as companies and as workers? These are some big questions that in some ways are almost spiritual questions about the economy and about our, our society. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Anand Giridhar Das is a journalist and author, and he's been a foreign correspondent and columnist for The New York Times. His new book is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I, as you know, because you've been on the show before, I, I, um, I don't always, but I usually start with some question about, you know, the spiritual or religious background of someone's childhood. And we, we did speak about that once before. I mean, I asked you that kind of straight-on question, and you spoke about, well, for one thing, you're you're of an Indian-American family of, you know, long lineage of Hindu practice, and you're kind of the generation that is where that bond of affiliation is loosening. Um, you talked about having a kind of civic spirituality, though, that has to do with your mm-hmm. your kind of belief and trust that there are greater possibilities for what occurs between people than we perhaps know and then than we perhaps always achieve, um, but that, that we can do more together than we do. And one of the things I kept thinking about as I was reading your book and as I'm getting ready to talk to you is, you know, that language is civic spirituality and, and how there's a civic spirituality of American culture that's very close or that has elements in it or that, that is related to what you're writing about. There, mm-hmm. there is a faith in mm-hmm. the market and, and, a, and a deep respect for the creation of wealth and yep. the influence that comes with that. I think there's a two faiths. So this is a story in some ways about these two rival faiths. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we do alone, a faith in what we do alone versus a faith in what we do together. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were saying that, that I think I could tell a second uh, spiritual background story that's actually much more real to me and more important to me, which is 
like my family's immigrant narrative. And a lot of this book and things like that for me are, are working out. My, my family and some, a lot of immigrant families kind of end up having this um, unconscious, like you pull yourself up, mm-hmm. there's no one helping you, you did it all by yourself narrative. And a lot of my journey has actually been um, unlearning that. Yeah, and that's, right, that's a merger of an immigrant story with the American story. Correct. And it's a very particular interpretation that leaves out a lot of details. Yeah. So so the book, Winners Take All, is is a book of reportage, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, I mean, what I'm interested in, what I want us to trace and kind of go into here is the arc of your wrestling of what you're mm-hmm. writing about now. And also, full disclosure, you and I know each other and have actually had some meaty discussions about not about the book, but about some of these subjects that we that we both care about mm-hmm. and that are alive in the world. Um, but the origin story of this battle cry of 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 the yeah, and I do feel actually like Winter's Tale is kind of a battle cry. Um, mm-hmm. Is your time as a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute? What year was that? Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. And so I just want to say that that is an incredibly powerful speech. It's online on YouTube. And it's called on YouTube, The Thriving World, The Wilting World, and You. Was that the title you gave it? Yeah, and if I remember it, I was just walking into the room like right before to do a mic check. And they're like, does it have a title? And I was like, no, I don't think it has a title. <laughs> and I was like, uh, let's do uh, it's like The Thriving World, The Wilting World, and You. Oh, okay. They're like, okay, we'll just put, you know, just put that in the schedule. Yeah, and, um, well, I mean the whole the whole speech was a surprise that no one knew anything about. So yeah, and you start out by saying that you'd been invited to speak about the theme of forgiveness, which was one of the threads in the previous book you'd written. But you began by saying to this room full of people, many of whom you, you knew well and and cared about, you know, that you weren't going to speak about forgiveness in that way they perhaps expected. And you said, after I have spoken, I will need your forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said, I want to reflect with you on where we stand. And that was also really notable to me that you were speaking as a member of that community, mm-hmm. as a community on some of the injustices of our time. So let's just talk through some of the major themes of that, which all flowed into where you are today on this. You talked about the Aspen consensus, and that is really bigger than just what happens in Aspen. Yeah. Um when I was in the fellowship, I was drawn into, I think as many other people were, this idea that we were coming together to do good. And that there were people, you know, privileged people, rich and powerful people coming together to help and make change and make a difference. And it was really um, an exciting experience, right? Like it was... It was mm-hmm. very, I mean, you yeah. sat with, with 21 people in this room and you discussed Plato and Gandhi and also Jack Welch, mm-hmm. um, which you know, was a bit of a problematic sign in retrospect. And you talked very sincerely about what was going on in the world today. How could you make a difference? How could you start a project to help? And all of that seemed great. But of course, I had, you know, started to realize as I got deeper into that Aspen world that it was also a world where like Pepsi and Monsanto sponsored things and the Koch brothers sponsored things and Goldman Sachs sponsored our reunions. And like, you started to realize that it wasn't necessarily clear that that this enterprise we were part of was truly about world betterment. And I basically became very interested in what 
this in the silences, what we were mm. not allowed to talk about or what we kind of just by custom didn't talk about when we came together to talk about making the world better. So the Aspen consensus was you can tell the rich and powerful in our age to do more good, but you can never tell them to do less harm. You can tell them to give more, but you can't tell them to take less. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell them to share the spoils of extreme capitalism, but you can't tell them to, you know, renovate capitalism. <laughs> Question so it's extreme, not so extreme capitalism, right? Correct. Right. Um, and it seemed to me that what we were doing and coming together in this way was genuinely trying to help, genuinely talking about these problems, genuinely creating action and programs and and little initiatives, thousands of little initiatives to help people. But in some deeper way, the whole thing actually, I started to realize, was a conservative exercise in protecting the system Mm. that kept us on top. Yeah, you shine a light on just language that we've all heard so much these days, that language that on a superficial hearing sounds good, right? Doing good by giving back. But then you kind of peel away, like, that also is an idea of generosity that is a substitute for the idea of justice. I, I think the you're picking up on the language point is so important. I mean, this is as unequal a time as America has been in 100 years. It's evidently as angry a time as it's been in a long time. Um, it's, you know, as democratically dysfunctional a time as it's been. Mm. Um, and a lot of how we got there, in my view is through seemingly innocuous language. Mm-hmm. Uh, language that found ways to smooth over real problems so that we didn't address them and so that they festered and festered and festered. And so it's language like the win-win, which sounds great, but in some deep way is actually about rich people saying the only acceptable forms of social change are the forms of social change that <laughs> also kick something back upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and language like doing well by doing good, which again is like, you know, the only conditions under which I'm willing to do good are conditions under which I would also do well. Mm -hmm. Um, And you really have this figure in our, rising figure in our time, the thought leader, who's sort of the the winner-friendly thinker, the thinker who um, sort of trims some of their diagnoses and prescriptions and looks at the world and what to do about it in ways that that kind of justifies the winner's position on top. Um, And those people get a certain kind of patronage and sponsorship and acclamation from the winners. And, you know, sometimes if on the the darker corners of the Internet, it's imagined that rich people are all sitting in a room, you know, making these horrible, evil schemes. And part of what I found was that a lot of these folks are incredibly decent and upholding an incredibly indecent system. And... The way you get from one side of the river to the other, from those decent people to the indecent system, is the bridge of, you know, faulty assumptions and weird myths and bad ideas that have managed to really rise to the fore and conquer a lot of our culture. Yeah, and I mean, even as you say, um, one of the things you said in Aspen that day and I think this was an Aspen that day, that one of the things you worried about that you would like people in the room to think about is that at this nexus of wealth and power and giving back, there is an underdeveloped sense of human darkness. So I'd really like for you to spin that out for me. And I think you're talking about both our 
the limitations of our sense of the potential for darkness in ourselves as well as in others. I think one of the things that started to fill me with unease in these spaces was what felt like an empty positivity. And that positivity essentially takes the view that any kind of social problem is like an inefficiency problem or, or we haven't kind of turned the dials quite right. And if we just turn them a little differently or figured out how to maybe assign those teachers to this school or maybe just just tweaks, if we just tweaked things and fixed things and scaled things and made things a little more efficient, um, we could get to the promised land. Mm-hmm. And when I say there's a missing sense of human darkness, that kind of view, although it's true for many kinds of problems in the world, it fails to describe a lot of problems in the world, which are problems of people having power that is unearned or using power unfairly and blocking other people's chance to live a full and decent life. And you can't talk about the struggles that women have to be full and equal members of society without talking about what men do. Mm-hmm. You can't talk, if you, if you insist on talking about that in a positive win-win way, you're tying, you know, one hand and four fingers on the other hand behind your back. And I also think that when you talk about a complex and openness to the complexity of the human darkness, you're not just talking about things men do, you're talking about things men do that they have had no idea they were doing, right? Right. So would have had trouble, and you can translate this in, all, in every area, understanding that as a piece of darkness. Absolutely. And I mean, I see this so clearly in Silicon Valley, which, you know, in, in many ways, when I spend time out there, what strikes me is I meet people out there who I think truly believe and wake up every day trying to make the world better and truly think that they are doing so and that, they, that they're sitting on tools and, and capabilities that could allow them to liberate humanity faster than, than anybody on earth. Because they're so confident in that, there's an assumption that the tools they're building will always make things better. The more people are connected, the more people are online, the more people are on Facebook, the more, the more, the more, it will always be better. And there's a failure to understand, like, the same tools that will empower people to, you know, be online can very easily be used by the Chinese government to prevent people from speaking their mind in a way that actually makes it harder rather than easier to do so. That's just, that happens all the time in history. Yeah. The and, same tools. And you connect human beings, you get the fullness of human beings, right? You get the primal, exactly. trollish places in our psyches. And Correct. you get our creativity and our magnanimity. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and none of which is to say these tools are all bad. But if you don't have a sense of human darkness, if, if, you, if you just... Which I just want to say, let's just call it being realistic about how complicated we are, right? Like just, Correct. You don't have to, it, it, it's just a reality base about but, the human but, condition. But it's become... Totally. Mm-hmm. But I think this is, you know, it's very interesting that a lot of the people, particularly in the Valley, you know, there's this thing of dropping out of college. Because one of the reasons these folks drop out is they feel they have the technical knowledge they need to get started. And part of what they're dropping out of, in many cases, is the liberal arts education that Mm. is precisely designed to give you these kind of frameworks to understand things like, 
history is cyclical mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and like good things have bad effects and things mm-hmm. go ways that you couldn't anticipate and just this normal understanding of how the human condition as you put it works yeah. and and when you have people with that much power over humanity that much power to decide you know more and more how children learn and how commerce works and how power functions and they basically have a a naive childlike understanding that you know any tool that they invent will inherently make things better you go to a very dark place Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the journalist Anand Girdar Das. This positivity has a long American lineage, and I think particularly an inheritance of kind of the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, you know, it's the mentality that gave us the idea of the end of history, which whatever people thought of that book really was kind of the way we acted as if until until in fact kind of September 11th 2001 there was this wake up call that history hadn't gone away and you just reviewed Francis Fukuyama's new book yeah in the I new did. york times book review um and i guess so, you know to kind of go back to this um other long lineage that's lo- longer than this one kind of our our faith in the market as an engine for that positivity, right? For mm-hmm. that greater, better, more, we'll fix it, that does lie ahead if we just keep doing our thing. Um, I mean, you know, you, you talked about your, your immigrant family story of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But, you know, I just, to me, that's just an American story. I mean, I grew up in a small town in central Oklahoma. Kind of the classic, you know, my father came from nothing, right? Dirt poor was a literal description. Um, and was a self, very proudly self-made man. And that is such an iconic American idea, an I- idea of ourself, that wealth, and also inside that is that wealth is a measure of hard work and it's worthy of respect. I almost think what you're describing is and it actually almost goes beyond the the specifics of the market versus you know government which is i think we're almost talking about two parallel and rival spiritual orientations mm. in america mm. there's a spiritual orientation that celebrates what we do alone what we each do alone and there's a rival orientation that celebrates what we do together and i think that these are both very strong parts of our culture and that they map a little bit onto this, or, or a lot onto this idea of, you know, the celebration of kind of a heroic, soloist, capitalist, pull yourselves up by the bootstrap story. But that's never been the only story. We've also always had this this story of, of movements and of, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, individuals who got rid of the King of England. I mean, we, like, the most important things we've done in this culture have also been together. And I think these these two tendencies, what we do alone and what we do together, have always vied for primacy in American life. But they've, at different moments, um, and for much of the 20th century, had a certain healthy tension. Mm-hmm. And I think right now the relationship between them is very unhealthy. It's become a relationship of like mutual annihilation instead of 
a relationship of, you know, adversarial cooperation. I think we need to get back to a place where we understand both and celebrate both um, the very real heritage we have in this country of doing things alone and of doing things together and the relationship that those, that those things have. Because at our best, we do things together in a way that allows people to, to do things alone. And we, people mm. do things alone in a way that creates the opportunities to do things together. These things don't have to be at war with each other, but they are absolutely at war today. One of the things that's been on my mind recently that I'm trying to think through, and I'd like to think through with you and see how you approach this, is that part of the problem and part of the difference between now and you know the mid-20th century is that we really don't, and I don't want to say we don't have a moral center of gravity, we don't have a vocabulary of morality or worth or value except for the creation of wealth or... Correct. Right? <laughs> I, I think about we this are as like really a second... impoverished. I'm going to use a wealth yes. analogy. We are really impoverished. I, I, I mean, I would think about this almost as like the, the second hat problem, which is I think if you, if you were to go back a little bit in time and think about business people in 1950 or whenever, they would always have, in addition to their businessman hat, they'd have a second hat. And that hat may be just strong community member and t-ball coach and volunteer for the you know Rotary Club and whatever. Yeah. But that second hat was often a spiritual hat. Yeah. They were in the church. They went to see other people in that church every week. They were. They had a a parallel set of values that were, you know, in some ways reinforcing of or in, in tension with the first hat. And I think what's happened in the business world is a lot of the people with wealth and power and real decision-making authority over how our society goes don't have a second hat anymore. They don't have some other set of values that competes with their business values. Yeah, I mean, so um, I think that it's, you know, that what you're describing that happened in the business world the geological layer below that is is a story of of a real shift in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to go back to those hats, right? Society has changed. We have secularized, but I think that what rushed in in the place of moral imagination was just the values of were economic values and economic metrics, right? And that's not big enough. It's not good enough. I think that's exactly right. However, I don't think that means that there can't be other second hats. No, but we haven't developed them yet. But we have to invent them. Like we're in this moment where I think the void and the consequences of the void, in fact, what rushes into the void is very apparent. That is right. That's what you're describing. And, and, And I think we should dwell for a moment on why that is, because as much as I am critical in the book of that being the the market kind of being the spiritual tradition to fill that void. I also understand the appeal of it from a slightly different point of view, which is, you know, when I was a foreign correspondent in India, I watched as the market gushed in mm-hmm. to this very old culture and a culture in which so many things had prevented people from making their own destiny and realizing their dreams and escaping the you know niche of their father and grandfather and mother and grandmother and 
I watched as the market came in and cleaned out a lot of those cobwebs and actually valued people according to their talents instead of their caste yeah. and value and you know and valued women according to their ability to be a bank teller not according to their genitals and or gender identity or you know what their mother thought they should do and that was an incredibly powerful thing to witness and i wrote a whole book about that you know I, like yeah. i i have seen the power of the mar- the agnosticism of the market when it comes to who you are and your background is a very powerful thing. And so I actually come to this with an understanding born of a different experience about why that is appealing to people. Um, But I think when it becomes the only language, when it becomes um, the only way of thinking about the right thing to do, it leaves us with a very impoverished sense of how to live together. Yeah. It's 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 good for creating wealth and creating things and building things, but it's not a guide. It's not a useful vocabulary for living together. After a short break, more with Anand Girdardas. We're putting all kinds of great extras these days into our podcast feed. Lots of poetry, music, and a new feature, Living the Questions. You can get it all as soon as it's released when you subscribe to On Being on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with author and journalist Anant Giridharadas, speaking about the confrontational, thought-provoking, and generative themes of his book, Winners Take All. He's questioning the moral calculus by which we trust the market to save us and ask the wealthy to give back but not to do less harm. You said that you were, I think it was in your interview with Ezra Klein, which I thought was such a great conversation, um, you said that you were meant to send your editor an afterword to the book with prescriptions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I agree with you on this that that our fixation on like the prescription and the solution and the plan and doing that immediately is is part of the problem. But I know people must be asking you this, and I I want to know how are you thinking about that conversation you're hearing as you're now out there. Yeah, I mean, my attitude to solutionism flows from my sense of what being a writer is and my sense of the fact that this is a big society where a lot of people have different roles and I don't need me to play all the roles. In fact, I have no desire to do that. Um, I think what a writer can do with the provocation of of a book like this is to force a conversation that maybe people would prefer to avoid in certain circles or to elevate to discussion things that are kind of, you know, lurking in people's 
hearts but not quite said out loud or yeah. to take things people kind of say in private to you, the writer, and put them out in public so that then people can say, well, yeah, I kind of agree with that and have conversations within their within their communities or within their organizations that they wouldn't easily have without it. It's a lot easier to metaphorically retweet something than to tweet something yourself. And I think part of what a book like this does is it just gives, you know, that 25-year-old at Facebook who's actually deeply uncomfortable with Facebook's power and behavior, it gives them a way to say, hey, have you seen that book? It's interesting. I mean, I don't agree with all of it, but have mm-hmm. you, I mean, that's kind of interesting. And are Instead you of, actually, are you, are people like that talking to you? Yes. I'm getting messages every day, email, I mean, all confidential, like all the time telling me, actually, you have no idea. You have no idea. You have no idea how bad it is. I mean, actually, I, I feel the struggle. People are telling me of their struggles within these organizations. I've become this, you know, confession booth um, <laughs> for... All kinds of people who are decent people, who know themselves to be part of indecent systems and who want to do better but are not sure whether to, to you know, in the words of that old Albert Hirschman book, like exit voice or loyalty. And, and, and do you leave? Do you stay? Do you fight? Do you speak up? Do you bite your, you know, bite your tongue until you're in a senior position? All those things. And part of what I think a writer can do is name unnameable things or things that are awkward to talk about. I hope no one ever just calls something a win-win again without, you know, having a Mm. sense of irony around it. And next time you hear someone say, well, we're, you know, our company's doing well by doing good. And if there's a small little, you know, pee under the mattress when you hear that, saying, that's something kind of weird there. That would be, for me, feel like an achievement. Because... I actually think a, a lot of how you get decent people upholding an indecent system is culture, is vocabulary, is values. And if you can if you can start to warp those or just twist them around, I actually think you can get somewhere. You do name some really basic contradictions and, in fact, morally repugnant contradictions that are right at the heart of our society and very close to home. For example, one example that you often cite which, frankly, I had never quite thought of it in exactly this way before, is that rather than talking about, you know, the tax structure, you have wealthy uh, people and philanthropists and companies, you know, funding a charter school, like a model charter school, but not taking on the underlying issue, the, the underlying fact that that the public school in a wealthy neighborhood is going to be better funded than the public school in a poor neighborhood. And then we all accept that, right? Like we all accept that. Yeah, I mean I was just in I was just in Ohio, the public schools in the city of Akron get $10,000 a year. That's the per pupil spending in Akron. Mm-hmm. There are there's another district in Ohio where the per pupil spending is $31,000 a year. Maybe maybe one of your listeners can explain that to a 6-year-old child. I know I would be unable to. Mm-hmm. I find it very hard to explain to a child why they have to get one-third as much educational resource as someone mm-hmm. else because mommy and daddy's house is less expensive. Those are the kinds of things that we all sort of tolerate. Well, right, and, and I think that also goes back to these like these these values we hold without understanding we hold them that somehow where there is great, I think it is this American thing where there is greater wealth, people have worked hard, right? Somehow they've yeah. deserved it. There's honor in that. Um, yeah, they didn't just pull themselves up by the bootstraps, they invented boots. Yeah, right. I think there's right. a, in this moment in time, there's a chasm between 
the core of the American self-image and the reality of who we are. I think that story of mobility and rising to your level is a deeply widely held story. And the simple fact of the matter is that story is less true in the United States of America than in almost any other rich country. The thing we think we are off the charts on, we Mm -hmm. are off the charts, but the wrong end of the chart. Mm -hmm. In America, your parents' income has the greatest predictive power over your income of any of the other rich countries. And so at the very heart of America in this moment today is we are not who we think we are, which is what I said to the Aspen Institute. We are not who we think we are. And that is always a hard thing to hear, but it's also a creative thing to hear because I think... What I'm not saying is, you got to live up to my values. What I'm suggesting is we've got to live up to our values. Mm-hmm. You need to have some discernment. That's the muscle we've lost, that moral discernment, right? Moral imagination. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this, um, this book, The Captive Mind, by Czesław Miłosz, and 1953, Polish intellectual kind of lamenting how um, his kind of generation of classmates and peers had gone from being kind of freedom-loving thinkers to kind of giving in to Stalinism just because it was convenient and, you know, that's where the jobs were and that's where the connections were. And he kind of watched all these people just, you know, kind of lay down for Stalinism, you know, which is a pretty serious thing to accuse all your friends of succumbing to Stalinism. On the other hand, he said he, he called the book a debate with those of my friends who were yielding a little by little to the, new, to the magic influence of the new faith. And I read that and I thought, ah, you can write a criticism, a profound and fierce criticism of people among whom are many of your friends, and you can lament their giving in to the magic influence of this new, new faith, but you can do it in a way that's a debate with your friends. And the idea is for people to, you know, sit with these questions of what is my relationship to the system? What is my relationship to inequality and the injustices in this country? What is, am I, you know, am I actually working on the right side to solve these problems? Am I enabling these problems by day and then tinkering with them by night? Am I, is my regular job, as opposed to my kind of side hustle, on the side of justice? Um, all these things. And what's been so amazing to me is actually the openness of a lot of the people, the kinds of people that I implicate in the book, the openness, the remarkable openness to looking at these questions. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the journalist Anand Girdardas. In the talk you gave in Aspen in 2015, um, as I say, you, you, you were there as a person living these questions, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you said, I love this community. You were speaking of that community of, sorry, thought leaders. 
uh, <laughs> activists, philanthropists, business leaders. And I fear for all of us, myself first and foremost, that we may not be as virtuous as we think we are. History may not be as kind to us as we hope it will. Our role in the inequities of our age may not be remembered well. I mean, you you also spoke poignantly, I think, about you know, you live in Brooklyn, right? You have worked for McKinsey. You've given great TED Talks. You make money writing books and on the on the speaker circuit. But you, you also talked about, like, in your world of peers and friends, um, these inflated notions people have that, that still do feel existential of what it takes to make a living, support a family. Um, how has this investigation and this conversation you're part of now, like, what is it sparking in you that perhaps you didn't expect when you began? How are you working with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I say in the acknowledgments, the best way to know about a problem is to be part of it. And as someone who writes and thinks for a living, I have definitely not been successful in avoiding it, nor have I had the, the courage or stomach to avoid it at all times. I mean, I've tried to live my life well, but for all the reasons you say, it's very complicated to avoid, just the same way it was complicated for, you know, like painters in Florence in a certain age to avoid the Medicis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what the investigation has left me with is thinking about, even as a writer, how do I make sure that I am working on, that that I'm using my you know, power, however limited it is, to interrogate systems and ask the questions you're not supposed to be asking instead of doing the kind of journalism or thinking or speaking that merely props up power. Um, But it also shows up for me every day in thinking about, you know, am I using my voice to say inconvenient things that might cause you know me to lose friends or or you know social capital to put it in those market terms mm-hmm. um, but that are part of maybe pushing us in some small way to where we need to get as a society um, but maybe I, this is a good place for us to talk about journalism's complicity in this yeah let's do it <laughs> because um you know the media you and I love also is part of this consensus of Everybody is part of the common culture we share. I think this is the problem. Yes, but journalism has a very specific power. Correct. To shine a light on and... uh, Correct. But, But Chris, that's not just... I fully agree with you, but I have to say, I mean, it's also every private school in America that now has to raise mm-hmm. endowments and, and has a mission of service and makes kids do 50 hours of community service, but is basically has like, you know, 18 millionaires on the board and is totally in fealty to, to mm-hmm. you know, wealthy donors. It's every university that is courting, you know, the next $30 million science center donation and puts whatever those people want ahead of its educational mission. It is absolutely the media which, you know, tells uncritical stories about um, about people giving back without asking hard questions about how they take. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can attack prosaic things like the level of inequality or the level of even societal anger without going to a deeper place of uprooting a culture mm-hmm. in which money is the fundamental currency of value. Right, you know? and I and mean, I, yeah, it's like the business pages of newspapers which are so much bigger than they used to be. Uh-huh. 
are in some ways the most interesting pages of newspapers because there we've given in, and this is a reflection of that, but also as I, as I feel a solidifier of that 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 business is is like really the most real lens on life. Yeah, and the, and there's a sense that I heard so much in reporting the book that like mm-hmm. business is how you make things different now. Yeah. In every age, it's something else. Maybe at one point it was the Catholic Church, and another point right. it was, you know, seafaring to like far off colonies. But now in our in our age, and it's it was business. nuclear arms. It was weapon people, negotiators. Correct. You don't get to ago. pick the locus of power in your mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is, and you have to try to make things better within that. And a lot of the people that I write about basically are kind of agnostic or even cynical about where the locus of power is in our time. They just assume it's in business. Yeah. And so what they're going to do is just do the best they can to to make change that way. But of course, what's, what that obscures is it's also a very convenient thing to cling to because it's a way of making change that you know, doesn't ask you to sacrifice in any way, which has traditionally been at the heart of any kind of spiritual or moral tradition, the idea that sometimes you have to deny yourself for the good of others. Yeah. And what the, this business religion, where it's unique, is it promises deliverance from the very idea of sacrifice. It, it promises that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can make a killing and make a difference, and you can help people and help yourself. And what an appealing fantasy. You know, I just think one of the fascinating things that, that probably has affected American journalism and the rest of our society is the Andrew Carnegie bargain, which he kind of set out in his Gospel of Wealth tract, um, which is essentially, if we give away a lot, don't ask how the money was made. Hmm. And I think in some ways, American journalism, but also just American culture, has agreed to play by the Carnegie rule. Well, we've also never told the story that way, right? Right. We just point at... Carnegie Libraries and Correct. this legacy of Carnegie Libraries, uh, among other things. And we don't tell the full story. Correct. Or, or reflect on the full story. And, you know, this is something you, you said this in Aspen and you re, it's very much through the book. I want my new son to have everything I can give him, even though I know that this is the beginning of the inequality I loathe. Um, you know, where when it comes to our children <laughs> and how much we want for them, and this like gets to the issues of schools. Um, this is where this stuff gets really messy. Uh, so I just I wonder how if you how you continue continue to wrestle with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I I thought a lot about I mean, living in Brooklyn in this very parent heavy environment is one of the things I try to do in the book is actually to make people think about inequality in new ways and using new language. One of those frames is to actually think about it as kind of who gets to own the future when the future rains on us and who harvests the rainwater of the future. And I think there's a lot of future that falls on us and just some people collect most of it. Another way to think about inequality is the line you draw between your love for your own children and your love for everybody else's children. Yeah. And at one level, it seems obvious that you... You know, you love your own children. But actually, if you think about what makes this society as decent as it is and the achievements that we've that we've built to get here, we actually don't value our children to the infinity point. Um, we all love our children, but we all generally 
embrace a bunch of rules that set a cap on just doing best by our children and, and also make sure we, we do right by other people's children. And that means paying your taxes. You pay your taxes, you know, because we understand you can't just give it all to your children. We got to take care of everybody's. And, and we you know, nourish common institutions and systems and welfare and various programs that we may not use and our children may not use, but that we think should be part of a system and available to, to someone else's children. And I think one way to think about where we are in America now is that our our love for our own children has just is far outstripping our concern for other people's children. And no one's ever gonna, whether it's my own child or or you and yours, no one's ever gonna take that away from you. But I think the question of a healthy society is where do you where do you draw that line so that there is place in your heart not only for your own children, but everybody's. And, you know, something that's so ironic about this, which is just representative of the mess we're in culturally, politically now, is that the hardest edge of the inequity and the hypocrisy that you're describing um, falls on people for whom even what you just said would be, you know, people who are just trying to make sure their children have something to eat, right? So they don't even mm-hmm. have that equation to, to, to wrestle with. And you're very clear that this phenomenon, these, this consensus is absolutely a problem of the left as the right, whatever that means. But I mean, do you, is this conversation you're having, do you, is it happening across what I hate these, you know, these ways of dividing up reality and in some way they're looser, but they're what we have. Is it happening across this Red blue divide and this urban rural divide. Some of these. I will tell you something from yeah. from my experience that I think is actually very surprising. It was certainly surprising to me. As I've been working on the book for three years, I've traveled a bunch around the country and all kinds of people. People you meet, whether it's in a cab or in a out in a restaurant or wherever, you run into people and people ask you what you do, what do you do, what do you do, and whenever it's come to you know, I'm a writer, I'm working on a book, or what's your book? If it goes that far, one of the things I've found is people instinctively, when I, when I say, well, I'm writing a book about kind of rich and powerful people who say they're changing the world, but really are consolidating their own wealth and power. I have found that people in the hinterland, in the heartland of this country, instinctively understand that faster and more readily than people in New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And people in kind of red places, that didn't strike them as a lefty argument. I think that strikes them as like something deeply resonant with their experience of the last 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. I actually think there is a bulging consensus of 60, 70, 80% of Americans who believe in one form or another that this country needs transformational reform, Mm -hmm. that it is not at a tweaking moment, that it is not at a dial-turning moment. Now, there's obviously huge disagreement on what the transformational reform is, and much of what people want is, is, is opposite. But I actually still think it's very significant that we have, I think, a consensus for deep system reform. For 30 or 40 years, I think we have been living under this idea that what happens privately, a thousand flowers blooming, companies growing, and these little initiatives, that that kind of incremental approach to bettering our society would save us. And I actually think we're now at a place where we are ripe, much as we were 100 years ago when we were in the 
the first Gilded Age, and you had these mm. great inequalities and great new technologies and a lot of dislocated people and a lot of anger and a lot of philanthropy. And what that gave way to was an age of reform. And I think we are ripe for a new age of reform in American life where these basic questions of what are the, what's the relationship between work and healthcare? Well, how do we do social mobility in an age of the gig economy and, and, and you know, iPhones? What is our relationship to place as companies and as workers? These are some big questions that in some ways are almost spiritual questions about the economy and about our, our society. And part of the drum that I've been beating, um, as much as personally I would love to see Donald Trump gone, is I think Trump needs to be the end of something bigger, which is an end of the veneration of money, an end of the faith in billionaire saviors, an end of trusting that the people who cause problems are the best at fixing them, and actually could be the spark of a moment and an age where we actually solve problems together again through deep reform at the root for everybody. Das has been a foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times. He's a visiting scholar at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. His books include India Calling, The True American, and Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, and Katie Gordon. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.